time for this week in Chicago history with Anna Devlonson, sponsored by uchicagomedicine.org. Well, February 1979 didn't feel like this, did it, Anna? <laughs> Not warm like it is this month. Not at all, Bob. I mean, we were snowed in. We were frozen in. The blizzard had just passed not long before. And this week in 1979, Mark, uh, one of the history-making moments in Chicago politics, Bob, as you'll recall, during a winter that was already in the record books, the blizzard of 79 that had shut down the city, it also tested the political might of incumbent Mayor Michael Belandic, who seemed to write the book on what not to do when running for mayor or any office for re-election in the city of Chicago. Flashback to 79 here, the city was paralyzed this week. It was over a week after the blizzard had passed through, and they were still trying to clear streets and stalled and snowed in cars. They hadn't yet gotten public transportation going. Garbage wasn't picked up for over 10 days. Schools were closed. Mail delivery was stalled. Hmm. And back then, if you think about it, Bob, you weren't you know, getting your checks electronically or digitally. Hmm. You relied on the mail to uh, get paid, government checks and things like that, too. Uh, so most side streets were still unpassable. And Mayor Belandic went on TV to say, well, the city is going back to normal. We're almost <laughs> there. And things are working again. And yeah, it's all great. <laughs> People were furious. They're like, this is a disaster. Didn't help, Bob, that the Tribune had just done a report saying that while most of the side streets were still a disaster, the one in front of Mayor Belandic's house was perfectly clear. So mm. people didn't like that either. Um, adding insult to injury, the mayor also said that he was uh, he was threatening residents. Move your car. Get it out of here. It'll be ticketed or towed. And one of the reporters asked, well, what about people who are elderly or disabled and they can't dig out their car? He's like, get it out of there. I don't care how. That's what the courts are for. You can fight it later. And <laughs> it was just wrong on so many fronts. Listen here to this audio we pulled, Bob. I think you'll, you'll really enjoy this. Um, so many legendary Chicago broadcasts voices on it, starting with longtime political reporter Dick Kay, who both of us knew very well, uh, explaining the debacle going on in the city and how Mayor Belandic seemed to have no plan. City Hall apparently attempted to cover up the fact that it had no blizzard plan, even though it had paid former Deputy Mayor Ken Sane $90,000 to design a comprehensive snow plan. The cover-up attempt even included release of a snow removal operations manual under the guise that it was the essence of Ken Sane's $90,000 plan. Three days after News Center 5 first demanded to see the Sane report, the mayor authorized Sane to make his program public. Sane conceded that only now is he working on a program for a major snowstorm, even though he has had the city contract since April. The city contract called for Sane to develop a plan for a major snowstorm. In the three reports released tonight, there are no plans for handling a blizzard. Sane said he believes the plan would have worked in a normal snowfall of 10 to 12 inches. But now he'll use the experience of this blizzard to design a disaster plan. You know what I remember uh, mostly mm. at the height of the blizzard, uh, Mayor, Mayor Belandic uh, goes on the Channel 2 News of Bill and Walter live to say, basically, mm -hmm. you know, as you said, uh, everything's under control. It's uh, all good. And that that turned out to be the, the mistake that he made uh, this week in 79. Yeah, he was uh, beyond blind to what normal citizens were dealing with, and it was just it was ridiculous to think about it. We also pulled one more piece of audio of the opponent in the case, Jane Byrne, soon to be mayor, and her campaign manager on election night both panicked that the machine, even though the momentum was on their side, would the machine would somehow steal the vote. 
Yeah, we're going to do it. We're, but you got to wait. We're 7,000 votes, but they're holding back. And you know what they can do at the last minute. Somewhere around 3 o'clock, I get a call from Walter Jacobson, who said, we got an exit poll and you're winning. And I said, come on. Understandably, a lot of folks probably in a near state of shock over at Blandick headquarters at the Bismarck Hotel. And standing by now with a live report, here's Carol Marie. Carol? Chuck and Jim, I'm with 42nd Ward Alderman Burton Materis as the machine failed to deliver. Yeah, you heard uh, Burn campaign manager Don Rose in there, mm. and uh, yeah, it was uh, it, from that point on uh, the snow uh, became a political uh, deal in Chicago, didn't it? You you had to clear the snow. Every mayor after that, anybody running for election had to have a plan and had to have the streets cleaned if you were uh, clear. If you were an incumbent, you just. Uh, it just became a thing in yeah. Chicago after that moment in time. From winter to spring and some history involving butterflies. What's this all about? 1993, Bob, is when researchers in the Chicago area started tagging the monarch butterflies to track their migration and, and learn more about their habits as they flew from Canada through Chicago to the Baja Peninsula and parts of Mexico where they breed and, um, you know, start life again. And if you grew up in Chicago and, and are of a certain age, I certainly remember this. You remember the how many monarch butterflies there were, these bright orange and black and white wings and, and just a beautiful sight. And so many of them I remember growing up. Well, sadly, uh, just a few days ago, the same research teams who've been charting this their decline over the years said that the population has dropped dramatically over the last year, 60% alone. And so lots of reasons cited for this, climate reasons, they say a lot of severe storms impacting their migration path or migratory path, deforestation in Mexico where they, they breed. Um, but Bob, there's something we can all do if you want to help the monarchs, you can plant milkweed you just that's what they that's their food source the their main food source and it's the only plant they'll lay eggs and so something you can do as we we you know kind of hope that this monarch population uh figures out a way to deal with a changing ecosystem next thing you know we'll see the butterflies in february it's eight forty seven. <laughs> we'll have more right. from anna this week in chicago history after a break Local boy made good. Anna has a story of Fallout Boy. Yeah, that song, Sugar, We're Going Down, the song and the album by the same name, really catapulted Pete Wentz and Fallout Boy, the Wilmette native, into a multi platinum status this week in 2015, Bob, 10 years after its debut. And just a really cool local story here. Wentz said he. He wrote that song with his dad here in the Chicago area. Um, he told Rolling Stone he used to listen to music in the backseat of the dad's car, his dad's car on the way to school, and that was kind of his early inspiration to go into music. You know, he dropped out of DePaul University just shy of graduation. He started Fallout Boy and appeared in the Super Bowl not too long after that. Fun fact, Pete Wentz's parents met uh, while working on Joe Biden's campaign in 1970. when <laughs> He was running for Senate way back then. So lots of cool stuff there. Lots of facts with the Pete Wentz, the Wentz family mm-hmm. report. This week in 2015. And now we have uh, what turned out to be a pretty good marketing idea. You know, Harris Bank, remember Harris Bank when it was just called that? It was a local community bank, Bob. And mm-hmm. um, this week in 1968, they started running TV ads on Chicago stations promoting their Hubert the Lion doll. And every kid in the metro area begged their parents for a Hubert doll. 
All you had to do was open up an account, any account at the Harris Bank, and you could get one, one per family, though. I'm sure that led to a few arguments. <laughs> uh, but it, it's kind of interesting because you think about um, this, this iconic brand that started when a VP at the bank decided that they wanted to have a more friendly community feel, and they felt a little stodgy, and so this would make them more approachable. He came up with Hubert, the loyal lion, and then Leo Burnett stepped in to help out with the rest. Uh, shortly after that, those, those plush, adorable Hubert dolls were unveiled, and every kid wanted one. We pulled a 1970s ad starring a soon-to-be-famous young star. Uh, here it is, Bob. Let's play it. Well, it's that time of the year when you can get a Hubert doll at the Harris Bank. Just open a savings account with $200 or more, or add $200 to a savings account you already have. If you got a Hubert doll in past years, get another one. You know, you can never have too many Hubert dolls, because <laughs> you can never save too much money. You should have a Harris banker. You should have a Hubert doll. Somehow my dad came home from downtown with Hubert's for all the grandkids. Yeah. My, we had three girls in my family, and we all had a Hubert doll. And I know they always advertise one per family. So I don't know what deals were cut privately at the bank, but yeah. <laughs> that did happen. Unfortunately. Did you hear the voice there of yeah. uh, young Gary Coleman? That was oh, really fun to hear that's, him. That's wild. Yeah. Fortunately, the statute yeah. of limitations has uh, run its course on that. Uh, this was the week, uh, actually it was February 18th of 1998 that we lost. Lost Harry Carey, wasn't it? Yeah, lost Harry Carey 26 years ago. Uh, this week, Bob, we all have our favorite memories of Harry as Cubs fans. And to mark his memory this morning, we, we pulled a clip, a great clip I think you'll enjoy. Harry Carey on David Letterman in 1986 explaining how it came to be that he leads the crowd, he leads uh, you know, the entire stadium with uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the seventh inning stretch. How did that start? You do that every game at Wrigley Field? You know, I've always sung. Whenever I heard Take Me Out to the Ball Game, I'd sing it, but only in the booth. And uh, the first six years I was with the White Sox, uh, uh, John Allen owned the ball club, and the only people who heard me sing was Jimmy Pearsall and our producer. The guys you worked with there? Yeah, broadcast. right, in the booth. Sure. Yeah, I said, Take Me Out to the Ball Well, Bill Veck bought the ball club, and he noticed, uh, just lip-reading, that I was singing. And then after a couple of days, he noticed... <laughs> the fans right below the booth were singing with me. And then one day, without my knowing it, he had a public address microphone put in the booth where right. I'm singing, take me out to the ball game. All of a sudden, I hear my voice come booming back at me, along with about 15,000 others. So after the game, I went up to Bill. I said, what was that all about? He said, Harry, I've been waiting 35 years to find the right guy to do this. And, you know, I'm getting a little pumped up. I think he's, he's flattering me. He said, I knew that any fans sitting in the ballpark, as soon as he heard you sing would be happy happy to sing along because they knew every one of them that they could sing at least as good if not better than you yeah. <laughs> great to hear harry again <laughs> it totally is isn't it just awesome to hear him there um you know you think about just again all the memories he created for us nice to mark this moment i know grant deporter and harry carey's restaurant always says his birthday is a big celebration but mm -hmm. it's another day to just sort of think about harry carey it is and finally you don't think of uh chicago and the record player as having some history together but they they are connected it goes way back bob in 1878 thomas edison patented the phonograph and not long after that a chicago company became one of the preeminent producers of the phonograph um o'neill james was their name and uh they became a national success story you know prior to edison's invention if you think about it you only listen to music 
live, live or in person. And so this introduced a whole new musical experience, the ability to play a recorded song. What a cool thing it was. O'Neill James Company started the Busy Bee Disc Talking Machine. And so they used uh, wax cylinders back then, right? This was before the flat records when they developed this. Um, they came up with a proprietary cylinder and that only worked with their phonograph. And they sold a lot of them. These busy bees were in a lot of people's houses all across America. Then the vinyl came along, and, and that's the kind of way you listen, listen to music, Bob, all, all the way mm-hmm. up until the 60s when the 8-track came out. Hmm. I think you'll probably remember the 8-track, Bob. <laughs> of course. <laughs> wow. This week in Chicago history, 1878, back when John Landecker went by John Phonograph Landecker. That was a long time ago. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. Yeah, we'll, that's interesting. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. Bye, Bob.